Welcome to The Productivity Show, the Asian efficiency podcast dedicated to helping you make the most of your time, attention, energy, and focus. In this episode, I'm joined by Eric Benchimel and Richard Kaiser, two academic physicians who recently published an article titled, Living Like an Academic Athlete, How to Improve Clinical and Academic Productivity as a Gastroenterologist. This article was published in Gastroenterology, the top-ranked gastroenterology journal and the world's 46th-ranked scientific journal, according to Google. And they join me today to talk about some of the unique productivity challenges that academics face. Hey everyone, Mike Schmitz here, and for this episode of The Productivity Show, I've got a couple very special guests with us, Dr. Eric Benchimal and Dr. Richard Kaiser. How are you guys doing today? We're doing great. Thanks, Mike. Doing good. Awesome. And for people who aren't familiar with you, uh, we're going to be discussing an article that you had co-authored. And I want to give people just a little bit of a background here. So I'm going to read these bios that you guys had sent over. Eric is a pediatric gastroenterologist at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa, Canada and an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics in the School of Epidemiology and Public Health at the University of Ottawa. He's a senior scientist and the director of the Health Information Technology Program at the CHEO Research Institute. He's a clinician primarily treating children uh, with Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and other chronic gastrointestinal illnesses. He's a researcher holding a new investigator award from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research for his work to determine why Canada has one of the highest rates of IBD in the world. And finally, he regularly teaches graduate students, medical students, and residents, and I'm going to add, is a dojo member. So (laughs) welcome, Eric. (laughs) Yeah, and a big fan of the show, a longtime fan of the show now. Awesome. Well, glad to have you on here. And then uh, Dr. Richard Kaiser is a pediatric surgeon and scientist at the University of Manitoba in the Children's Hospital Research Institute of Manitoba in Winnipeg. His Clinical interest concentrates on minimal invasive pediatric general surgery, and his research focuses on congenital anomalies in general and congenital diaphragmatic hernia, CDH, and abnormal lung development. He's the Thorlickson Chair in Surgical Research and is the Director of Research and Graduate Chair for the Department of Surgery at the University of Manitoba. Dr. Kaiser was the first pediatric surgeon and scientist funded in the Canadian Child Health Clinical Scientist Program and also a dojo member. So welcome, Dr. Kaiser. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having us. All right. Now, as I mentioned, you guys co-wrote a study called Living Like an Academic Athlete, How to Improve Clinical and Academic Productivity as a Gastroenterologist. And you had sent that over uh, a while back before it was even published, and uh, we want to talk about some of the things that you had discovered in putting together that article. But first of all, what is a gastroenterologist? So I guess this is up to me to answer. I'm the gastroenterologist, whereas Richard is a surgeon. So a gastroenterologist is basically, well, I'll, the simple way to describe it is the way my kids describe me. I'm a, I'm a poop doctor. I take care of kids and their poop. So anything in the gastrointestinal tract from stomach to intestines to colon, but a gastroenterologist also takes care of the liver and the pancreas. And I specialize in treating kids with uh, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, so chronic inflammatory bowel disease of the, uh, of the intestines. I have four boys who just got a lot more interested in this podcast, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> my kids love that. Uh, my, my 13-year-old daughter, not so thrilled about it, but my, uh, my son is thrilled. <laughs> nice. So 
What are the similarities here? Because the title of your article is Living Like an Academic Athlete. So what are the similarities here between an athlete and a gastroenterologist uh, before we dive into the specifics of the, the article itself? We came up with this title after I came across a publication in the Harvard Business Review in uh, the January 2001 issue and was written by Jim Lur and Tony Schwartz. And, and I can uh, make that available through the show notes as well where they talk about the ideal performance state of uh, athletes and how that might translate to the business world. So one of the things they mention is that athletes take really good care of themselves. They make sure that they're well-rested and well-trained before they uh, have a, a very big performance to, to do. And then we translated that to our world in academics where we feel like we, we're working really hard. We are trying to be the best of ourselves and perform at the highest level. So we have to make sure that we take good care of ourselves and make sure that we're as efficient and effective and productive as we can be. And so we came up with the concept of the academic athlete. Awesome. I, I love that definition. And I think it's very appropriate for the productivity show where we mentioned like where our mission is to help you make the most of your time, attention, energy, and focus. So those are kinds of the things that you're talking about when you're looking at the characteristics that would help you perform as an academic athlete, I'm guessing. But we'll get into, I'm sure, the specifics of that in a little bit here. Curious, and I'd like both of you to answer this question, I guess. I will start with you, Eric. How did you get into productivity and what caused you to start living like an academic athlete, even if that title wasn't necessarily your idea? So I think my travel, my, my time spent learning about productivity was very, very gradual and very slow with a couple of very fast uh, fits and starts. So what I learned in high school is that I was not a very good student. I couldn't focus. I couldn't sit down and study. Uh, I didn't do all that well. I much preferred playing video games. And what I learned in university when I actually needed marks in order to get into medical school was that if I, number one, sat down with a set of earphones and listened to either music or unfortunately talk radio, and now I realize that probably wasn't the most focused way to work after reading Cal Newport's Deep Work uh, book, you know, but at least it got me to sit down for longer periods of time and I didn't get as bored. And I think it was easier for me when I was young to multitask compared to now when it's much more difficult. The second thing I realized is that when I tracked time, when I actually tracked the number of hours I sat studying, I was motivated being a biostatistics person, epidemiologist, meaning I deal with numbers a lot. I was very motivated to try to kind of beat my own records and beat my own streaks. And that helped me sit down and study. My next big step forward, I think, was in my fellowship, which was when I was training to be a gastroenterologist. And part of the fellowship training was doing research and sitting down and really writing grants and writing protocols and writing papers. And I shared an office with about 12 other gastroenterology fellows. Uh, and many of them were international uh, students from all over the world who were quite loud. And what I realized is when I was getting to work at 8.30 in the morning, wanting to leave by 5.30 in order to go home and have dinner with my kids, which I feel was very important that time I spent with my kids, I would get to work at 8.30 in the morning, be distracted by all sorts of things, not get what I wanted to done, and uh, feel guilty when I got home. And when I was spending time with my kids, I should have been spending quality time. Instead, I felt guilty. 
And I started to wake up in the middle of the night, realizing I had forgotten things and that it's, there were deadlines that needed to come up and I just wasn't focused enough to remember them. And I would wake up in the middle of the night being stressed that I needed to get something done the next day. And that's when I read Getting Things Done. And that book changed my life completely. Uh, I started going to work at 7 a.m. instead of 8.30 and at least getting the two hours of work done uh, without any distractions. I started working in the office with noise-canceling headphones so I could block out all the noise uh, going on around me. And I started using the getting things done method really you know, rigorously and monitoring all the things that I had to do and getting them out of my head. And then more recently, I've sort of gotten more into other sort of productivity techniques like doing deep work and focused work, like using a Pomodoro timer, uh, like using uh, a time tracker for my time online to avoid using social media and things like that. So uh, sort of been a gradual process for me. So it sounds like the evil open office concept applies to the academic world as well then? <laughs> it was painful, absolutely painful. And now <laughs> now I have my own office, so that helps a lot. But it doesn't save me from the distractions of social media and email and phone calls and pages and all of those things. <laughs> right, right. Uh, what about you, Richard? How did you get started in uh, productivity? And what caused you to start living like an academic athlete? Yeah, so so one of the things that happened to me in 2012, I uh, I became that Torlakson chair that you mentioned in the intro, and that came with a lot of uh, responsibilities. And in the beginning, I was quite overwhelmed with all the tasks that were asked for me to do and added onto my regular job as a surgeon and as a scientist. And then I, I like to be in control of the things I do and I like to be in control of, of how I operate. And, and so I started to read about productivity and how to work more efficiently. And that's when I came across OmniFocus and I started to use that. And then I was working with that a little bit. I read David Allen's book and then I wanted to dive a little bit deeper and then I came across your OmniFocus post and I started to apply those and work with those. Eric and I actually started talking about how we both applied some productivity techniques and, and we got some traction on, on exchanging ideas and exchanging methods, how we work. And then since we are both part of the Canadian Child Health Clinician Scientist Program, we were asked to do a workshop on this to show other people in the program how we work and what kind of uh, productivity methods we use. And then we gave our first workshop and that led eventually to the publication of this paper. But to me, it, 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 um, it, it goes back to about 2012 when I first started to really be more efficient and more effective, uh, learning a lot about productivity, also learning, and I've heard that on your show that you can pretty much spend your whole day learning about productivity, but in the end, you have to actually do some work as well. So you have to find a balance there. But but uh, yeah, Eric and I always like to catch up when we meet each other at least once a year about the different things we've tried to work more efficiently and more effectively. That's awesome. So a couple of things stand out to me. It sounds like both of you... Uh, kind of stumbled into productivity via getting things done or GTD, which was my story as well. You got introduced to Asian efficiency through OmniFocus and the premium post, which again is <laughs> resonates with me. That's how I got connected. Um, the first, pro first product I bought from, from Asian efficiency as well. I also really like that you got connected and you. it sounds kind of like you sought out other people who were looking to 
become the best version of themselves. I'm curious, in the academic world, I know that there's a bunch of things that we'll get into in a little bit, specific challenges that academics face. Uh, but is this a, a a unique belief system or is this pretty common that people in the academic world are are looking to not just get more things done, but to to do the to do efficiently what should be done efficiently, cut out the things that shouldn't be doing, you know, become productive, but not in the sense of I just want to I just want to uh, crank out more widgets or, or or do more, you know, add more to my to do list. I think that um, it's probably a mix of people, but the stress of being overworked and the stress of many different activities is almost universal. And the complaints from people of having too much to do and too much on their plate and too many distractions, the split role between the researcher and teaching. So when when you say that we're academic, we're physicians who work in a university environment. So we have we have the added role of also having patient care involved, whereas other academic like university professors and graduate students have the research and the teaching and the administration, but not so much of the patient care. So I think this this pain that we feel sometimes about the split role, and you see all sorts of people. Some people love the split role and relish it in it, and some people unfortunately become miserable and either hate going to teach uh, or hate patient care, which becomes obviously a big problem for physicians. So I think we found that everybody's different, but I think everybody had something to learn from the idea of protecting your time and feeling comfortable in the goals that you set out for yourself and in the methods you use to protect your time against other distractions. Nice. Okay. Uh, you had mentioned that you kind of need to establish a, a system and you, you outlined some of the different unique challenges that academics specifically face, the patient care, the research, the teaching, the administration, stuff like that. Uh, what are some of the common things that you, that you found the system uh, alleviates with people who have to balance all these responsibilities? How, how does having a system help? I could start maybe with that one. I, I think um, scientists and, and people in academics in general are probably high fact finders, and they, they really want to um, uh, live by certain standards, and, and they, they like to uh, dig down and and come up with systems so that they, they're very data-driven, I think. And um, that gives a sense of control, whereas when you get really overwhelmed with all the different tasks and, and uh, uh, roles that you have as an academic scientist, a system will help you gain control over your life again. And, and those rules will then that sense of control in itself i think will help you be more productive because it helps you not to worry as much about it and you feel like it will get done as long as you stick with your system and i think that that was a main driver for me to to try and find a system to gain back some control over all the things that were coming at me in my new role on the other hand i would say that physicians and academics are they want to uh, satisfy other people and they have a very very hard time saying no in general especially when it comes to patients so what i've also noticed over the years is that physician academics will always prioritize patient care and sometimes that's to the detriment of all the other things that they have to do not that patients 
uh, shouldn't be number one priority. They always are. But not everything is an emergency and not everything requires your immediate attention. And so if you're expected to produce research or if you're expected to teach, you know, medical residents or medical students, if you're expected to serve on hospital administrative committees, that doesn't necessarily mean that patients should always be able to interrupt and that simple questions can't wait for later. So 99% of the interruptions that we faced as physicians are can be delayed and can be batched. Uh, there's always that 1% emergencies where a patient needs to be seen or, or a phone call needs to be answered. But for the most part, the, the patient care can wait for batch time periods. And I think it, that's one of the things that uh, obstruct physician productivity and distract physicians. So it's, it's not fair to medical students if you're always thinking about something else. It's not fair to your patient if you're always thinking about research or about some administrative task that you haven't done yet. So that idea of focusing on the task that you're doing, including patient care, including research, including teaching, or including administration is really important, especially for physicians. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that, that just about anybody in the audience can resonate with what you just described, Eric, where people are, are coming to you and saying this is an emergency and it's up to you to figure out whether it actually is an emergency. Uh, is there specific challenges that you face as an academic or as a, as a physician in, uh, in, in clarifying that stuff? I mean, it, it seems hard enough for me to do that with emails that come in, but how do you do that when you have a patient who says, you know, I, I need some help with this? Well, I think what Eric was saying is true. Like, I think uh, patient care comes first. That's why we became doctors. But I think especially as academic physicians, one of the challenges is, and I think one of the reasons why we came into this profession is that we are interested in many, many things. So as soon as somebody asks you, do you want to be part of this committee or do you want to be part of this collaboration? We sometimes have a hard time saying no. And then you have to actually, I think systems can help then to kind of prioritize where you put your most effort and, and where you will have the biggest impact. And, and I think that's where systems come in. And I think your team also plays a huge role. So the idea that everybody is turning to you as a physician or as a professor to answer their problems and to answer their questions, it's uh, very ego-driven and it makes you feel good that you can help people and that you can solve their problems, but it's not necessarily the best use of your time. I rely hugely on my team, and those include nurses, those include research coordinators. As far as you know, the nurse that I work with, we established a way right from the very beginning that I would be interrupted if it was an emergency and needed to be dealt with, and we found that texting me was probably the best way to do that. However, if it could wait till the end of the day, an email should suffice, and I will answer all emails by the end of the day. That's the agreement that I have with the nurse that I work with. And if it's something that's not an emergency, something that can wait for our weekly review, we do a re weekly review on patients, uh, on any issues that come up, any lab results that come up, that waits for the weekly review. And so we have a system developed that I can rely on her to answer questions of patients uh, because she's a nurse case manager, she's a specialist in the, in the field that I work with. She can answer questions for patients uh, in the short term. And if it's something that she can't answer or she can't address, she knows how to prioritize things. I think where we've run into a little bit of uh, barrier, I guess, in medical care 
is the electronic health record, which unfortunately is downloading a lot of the work that was previously done and delegated to other people, is downloading directly into the physician inbox. So we've recently adopted an electronic health record, and I've found that I'm the one that ends up having to review all the lab work uh, and all the messages from patients and things like that. I can delegate it to a certain extent, but what I've learned to do is basically just batch. And I have to set out a time which set, which is set aside in my calendar where I go through my chart inbox and I don't open the chart otherwise. I've seen colleagues who open the medical record constantly and are constantly looking at their inbox and they get distracted and there goes the day for everything else, right? So that's not fair to the rest of your responsibilities if you're constantly getting distracted in that way. So it's really a matter of delegation and time blocking that's really, really important. So it sounds like you've applied the touch at once principle to patient records as well. And if I'm hearing you right, that's made a significant impact. It has. I've tried to do the touch at once principle. (laughs) I'm not always great at it, but I do my best. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Uh, let's get into some of the contents of the, the article here itself. Now, you had defined productivity in the article. Uh, I like this, this definition. Uh, one of you want to share the, the definition of productivity that you, you use in the article and then maybe some of the benefits of productivity? Because this, this article was published in the, the, uh, the gastroenterology magazine. Uh, what is the benefit of this for gastroenterologists? I think you were the one defining uh, the the productivity, right, Eric? You want to answer that? Uh, yeah, I may have been. I don't know. It's not. It's not a definition that I think I didn't make it up. I've I heard it somewhere else, but I, unfortunately, I could not find where I heard it. But essentially, it's that productivity refers to the act of being purposeful and achieving your goals in an efficient and an effective manner. So it's not about checking off the next item on a list. It really is something that you guys have spoken about on the Productivity Show. It's not about that next widget that you're cranking out. It's about recognizing what your goals are, short, medium, and long-term, and moving forward to achieve those goals. So as far as benefits for a gastroenterologist, I think it's the same as benefits for any academic physician or any academic, like a professor or a grad student. Really, it's defining your goals ahead of time recognizing what will make you most happy in life and working productively, working efficiently to achieve those goals. And I think the benefits of that are that, number one, you will be happier. You will know what you want out of life. You will know what you should be achieving. But number two, I think it will result in better uh, focused work in each of your areas. So your patients will feel they have your full attention and that you're not distracted with your mind wandering on some other thing that you have to do. When you're teaching the residents or the grad students will feel like you're right there teaching them and that your mind is not somewhere else. And when you're doing research, you're able to f- sit and focus and work on the analysis or work in your lab on the, on, the, uh, on the experiment or write properly. And that's one of the big barriers that a lot of academics have is writing and sitting down and with all of these competing responsibilities, finding time to write And one of the biggest changes that I've made in the last two years was really to block time in my calendar where every day, Friday morning, sorry, every week at Friday morning, nine to 12, I have time for writing and I do nothing else at that time. I block the internet, I block phone calls, everything is writing. So that focused deep work that Cal Newport speaks about. uh, And I think it, it worked so well for me last year that I've tried to double that block this year to a second day. Uh, my research coordinator who sets up all my meetings doesn't like me very much, but I think it's worked very well to get my goals going. 
<laughs> I like that. And honestly, no matter what what field you find yourself in, I think you're going to run into those people who maybe aren't going to like you so much for being a little bit selfish and uh, prioritizing the things that you de- you've determined are are important. But it sounds like you've kind of struck a balance there. And what I like about the the definition of productivity that you shared, whether you came up with it yourself or not, is that you've got both efficient and effective. Where obviously at Asian Efficiency, we have a big emphasis on doing things efficiently, but also doing the right things efficiently. I think it was Peter Drucker who said, you know, nothing is so useless as to do efficiently that which should not be done at all. And that's where the effective part comes in. And you've got the word purposeful, like being intentional about how you're spending your time, how you're spending your uh, your attention and being able to be like you described Eric fully present in whatever you're doing knowing that whatever hat I'm wearing right now this is the right thing to do with this moment absolutely could i add a little uh, piece on the on the goals and the goal setting i've just went through this with uh, one of the people i've been mentoring here in uh, in manitoba at the university and and she was struggling a little bit uh, to really give her career direction and to make sure that she was on the right track. And then we started kind of with her long-term 20, 25-year goals. And I said, well, where do you want to be known for? And, and what do you want people to think of when they think of you in the next 20, 25 years? And as soon as she had that kind of clear in her mind, it was a lot easier for her to drill back down to the five-year goals and then the short-term goals for the next few months, but then even the daily goals. I think if you have the the big plan in your head, and I I think a lot of people don't think as far ahead, um, it's a lot easier to determine uh, even the daily life stuff and and to prioritize what you're going to do and where you're going to work on. Yeah, I completely agree. I like that approach, uh, what you just described, Richard, where you have the the long-term vision or where you want to end up. And then working backwards from there, because that provides the motivation for the daily actions. Now, in the article, you talk about routines and rituals and some of the specific things that it sounds like both of you do on a daily basis. Do you want to kind of talk us through those? Sure, I can maybe start. Like I, um, I have a morning ritual where as soon as I get up, I, I uh, drink a big glass of water with some uh, lemon in it. I uh, do meditation with the uh, Headspace uh, mindfulness app about 10 minutes a day. I am not perfect at journaling yet, even though uh, you guys really promote that. And Eric has told me about his good experience with that. I definitely do some uh, uh, exercise or stretching in the morning and then I have breakfast with my family. I, I was always uh, kind of an evening person where I would I would love the hours after the whole family was in bed and, and I would uh, start plugging away on my to-do list. But I found that if you get up a little bit earlier, go to bed a little bit earlier, you get a lot more productive start of your day. And then when I uh, uh, started doing those rituals first thing in the morning, I'm actually ready to take on whatever's coming my way that day. Nice. I think I'm a lot like you were. I'm naturally a, a night owl, but uh, I've shared my story on the productivity show before, so I'm not going to get into it here. But I started getting up early and realized that the things that I wanted to do, if I did them early in the day, uh, I could become a morning person because they were the things that I wanted to do. I was eating my frog. I was doing my writing before I went into the office. And that's the thing that got me ultimately connected with the Asian efficiency team. So I, I definitely uh, I definitely believe that anybody can make that transition from 
someone who is a quote unquote night owl to, to being a, a morning person. I would agree. Now, Eric, it sounds like you're the one who kind of addresses the journaling bit from this article. Do you want to talk about your morning and evening rituals? But specifically, I'm curious, what are the benefits that you found from your daily journaling practice? Sure, absolutely. I mean, let me say for a second that I don't think Richard is the perfect example of a night owl, considering I still remember my surgery rotation in medical school where we all had to get up and be at rounds at 6.45 in the morning. And I vowed in medical school that I would never be a surgeon because I'd have to be at work at 6.45 in the morning. (laughs) And now I get to work between 6.30 and 7 a.m. every single morning. So it's kind of ironic, but um, I think all surgeons are to a certain extent have to be morning people. But Uh, I get up around 5.30 a.m., 5 to 5.30 a.m. I eat some breakfast. I have a coffee uh, on my way to work uh, or on my way to the gym. So I try to work out two or three times during the week uh, and then twice, both days on the weekend, I work out in the morning as well. Uh, I found that I can't work out after work. I'm just too tired to do it. So working out in the morning is the only time. Uh, when, When I'm done my workout, I come to work, I journal, and I'll talk about a little bit about what I do with the journaling, and then I meditate for 15 minutes, and then I get into my day in terms of uh, getting work done. So my journaling routine is very standardized. So I answer the same question. So I'll basically take one page out of my Moleskine notebook, and I do use paper and pen for that. It's, I'm a very technologically oriented person, but I think it's great for me to put everything else aside and use paper and t- pen to journal. Uh, my first paragraph is just basically a summary of what I did yesterday. And then I answer very specific questions, which I think was a technique that I learned from you guys on the Productivity Show uh, and Asian Efficiency. So the questions that I ask myself are, number one, what did I learn yesterday? And unfortunately, sometimes the answer is nothing, and that's not a good day, but sometimes that's true. Uh, The second thing I answer is, what could I do today to make the day better? The third thing is, what are my most important tasks? Usually three is what I pick. The most important tasks I have to get done today. And if I can get those done, I know that anything above that is bonus, but I'd be happy to get those three things done. Fourth is, what did I get done yesterday? So my tasks, my major tasks that I got done yesterday. Fifth is, uh, what am I grateful for? What am I thankful for? At least three things I have to say uh, every day. And finally, the um, the last is uh, sort of, what did I do yesterday to be giving in some way? What did I do to help somebody uh, and be selfless in some way? Because I try to do that every single day. Uh, so those are the main questions. And then I also do a weekly review where I review what I learned that week, what tasks did I accomplish, what, what are my most important tasks for the next week, uh, and then I review my Pomodoro segments. Uh, and that's the one thing that I've started to do in the past year was time Pomodoro segments of deep work. And like I said, I'm a very metrics and statistics-oriented person, so I try to you know, break my week from the previous week by seeing how many segments I've gotten done and adding it up and seeing how many hours out of my week. I typically work anywhere from, I'd say, 45 to 60 hours in a week, thereabouts, on average. I mean, there's some weeks that are worse than that and some weeks are a bit better. And you know, unfortunately, the Pomodoro segments often don't add up to very much, not as much as you expect, right? So knowing how much you're actually getting done in terms of deep work is really important to understand what proportion of your week is spent on your most important tasks and what is spent on other things. Nice. So you mentioned deep work uh, a few different times here. And a little bit earlier, you talked about your deep work sessions and some of the specific things you did to make sure that you weren't being interrupted during those deep work sessions. It kind of gets into 
one of the sections in your article where you talk about avoiding distractions, turning off notifications. I'm curious, what's your process look like for this to make sure that you're not interrupted when you're doing your deep work sessions? Sure. So the door is closed to my office. Nobody comes in. I turn off notifications on my phone, including texts. I don't answer my phone. I don't answer my my office phone, uh, although people don't tend to use the office phone much anymore. And then typically I use Rescue Time, an app that uh, monitors the time you spend on different sites, but it also can block the internet. So I have it set to block any sites that are neutral or distracting. And so only productive sites can remain. So the productive sites will be sites that I use in writing. So things like PubMed, which is a medical indexing uh, website, or my, my hospital, my university library, for example, or EndNote, which is a medical reference software tool that I use, and obviously Microsoft Office to work. Uh, Evernote is a big part of my life. So all of those things are not blocked. But everything else, especially social media, uh, email, is blocked. Nice. Richard, do you have anything additional that that you do to protect? uh, It sounds like maybe you do the deep work sessions as well. Uh, Maybe you don't call them deep work sessions, but do you do do anything specific to make sure that there is time where you cannot be interrupted? Well, I I do similar things as Eric. I don't think, and, and hearing him talk, I actually have to relook at my calendar a little bit again, maybe, because I don't get around to block a half day a week for only writing. I am getting better and better though at when I actually have an hour or two hours to write to make sure that I don't have any distractions. I've become pretty good at uh, not not being distracted by website. I close my browser, I close my email. I'm still uh, available if somebody calls me, but but I'm trying to make sure that I'm not going back and forth between email and, and the work I'm doing. I also use rescue time to get insight, insight in, in where uh, I'm spending my time and, and how productive my time is spent. But listen to Eric, I think I could probably be a little bit more uh, stringent about how I spend my time, but, but I make sure that the distractions are, are really uh, as minimum as possible. Uh, you'd mentioned earlier, Eric, also about uh, blocking time. And in the article, you mentioned time for productive activities should be scheduled in your calendar and ruthlessly protected. Uh, I know avoiding distractions, turning off your notifications is definitely part of that. But is there anything else that you'd like to add or any other strategies or tactics that you use to ruthlessly protect your <laughs> your precious productive time? So saying no to meetings is a big one. So we, I'm sure you're in the same boat, but we get tons of doodle pulls all the time. Doodle being that scheduling software, which is fantastic at finding a time that works for everybody. But inevitably, there's many, many time slots that conflict with my deep work time. And even though I could be nice and I could be helpful in helping this person find a time that works for everybody, I don't. And I say, no, I'm sorry, even though 9 to 12, there's nothing specific scheduled. It's really for writing. uh, I say no to that. I also make sure that I don't meet medical students during that time. I don't meet uh, trainees. I don't meet anybody else. I'm in my office sitting at my desk and doing nothing else. I think that's the the main point of the ruthless time. What I what I will end up doing, I think, at some point, 
is putting a sign on my door. Right now, I'm actually quite removed from the rest of the clinical hospital. My office is away from everybody else, so that's helpful. But when I eventually move into the clinical hospital to work next to my colleagues, just when they get the office space, uh, I'm going to have to put a sign up on my door to say, please do not disturb deep work. Unfortunately, well, fortunately, the ruthless time protection thing is not violent yet. I can do it this way without <laughs> resorting to any violence. <laughs> nice. Uh, also in that section on blocking time, you mentioned that your calendar should reflect your priorities for the day and the week. So I get, you know, you, you, you get a doodle poll, people want your help with things. And if it falls during one of your deep work sessions, it's easy to say, well, I shouldn't say easy, but you have the ability because you've determined that this is important to you and it's on your calendar that you can say no to this because it falls in this particular area. But what else do you do to make sure that you don't just say yes to all the other things in all of the other blocks? Like what did you actually, like Kel Newport talks about schedule every minute of, of every day, or what do you do to make sure that at the end of the week, your calendar is a reflection of your priorities? Yeah, so I can maybe answer some of that. Like I, I was going to add to what Eric was saying that uh, one of the strategies I I was told by a, a senior mentor was also to have my research office where I need most protected time is away from uh, the hospital. So there's a little barrier for people to reach out to me because I'm not just sitting next to them. Uh, so when I'm in my office in the research institute, I actually uh, have a little bit uh, more protection than somebody who's in an open office. And for me, what really helps too, also for the admin assistants, when they look into my calendar and see if they can book a meeting, if I make sure that there's blocks of time scheduled for, I don't call it deep work, but I call it writing and research. Even if they see, well, they have to have a really important meeting with somebody, it's, it's an additional barrier to actually make that happen and to, to schedule that. And, and for me too, when somebody walks up to me saying, can you meet next Friday from 10 to 11? And if it shows in my calendar that I've, I've selected that time for, for my uh, period of, of block time to work on my research, it helps to step back a second and think about it a little bit extra. Can I really attend this meeting? Can I, can I accommodate this request? Or should I really focus on what I have to do? And so when I started scheduling these periods of uh, these blocks of, of research work, it really helped with my productivity. The other thing I have to mention is the, the reverse works as well. When I'm on service, which means when I'm taking care of patients in the hospital, so doing inpatient service and uh, doing consultations to other patients or going down to the emergency room, when I'm scheduled for that week on service, I tend not to book any meetings that are not related to patient care, or I try not to anyway. It doesn't always work, but you know, I don't think it's fair to either the patients who uh, require your care when you're when they're when they're in hospital, and I also don't think it's fair to your colleagues that if you uh, have a meeting scheduled with them, but you're called to the operating room or you're called to see a patient urgently on the ward, that you then have to cancel it and they have to go through the whole process of rescheduling it. So when I'm taking care of patients, I really try to avoid uh, scheduling any meetings that are not related to patient care as well, and that's really important for my sanity uh, as well as that of the patients. The the volume uh, has increased. I've been at this hospital in Ottawa for eight years, and the volume has increased hugely over the last eight years, just the number of patients we're seeing. And so it just has become almost impossible to get other work done when I'm on the inpatient service. 
Okay. So that kind of leads into the next question that I had here because you've mentioned a couple times uh, saying no to things. So if the amount of patients that uh, that the hospital is, is seeing, and I'm assuming that means that you're seeing, uh, is, is increasing and there's all of these demands for your time. In the article, you mentioned that tempting opportunities will arise in patient care administration or research that may not fit with your goals and objectives. How do you personally... Uh, determine whether something that you're being asked to do is in line with your goals and objectives, and how do you know whether you should say yes or no to that thing? So this is my favorite topic. Saying no is my favorite topic, so I'll cover this first if that's okay, Richard. So a a few ways. I mean, I think this is a big issue, especially for junior academics, for people just starting out on faculty or just starting out as physicians, because you want to go there, you want to be part of the team, you want to help people, uh, you want to be part of the hospital community or the university community, you want to serve on committees, and you want to justify that they made the right decision when they hired you. However, that can be completely deadly if all of these administrative tasks or committees or paperwork interferes with what your main goals are. So the first step absolutely is establishing what goals you have and establishing what you think will be important for your career. The second step is then evaluating those offers as they come in and waiting and not responding to them right away, sleeping on those offers, thinking about the offers and thinking about do they fit with my priority and do they fit with what my goals are, both short, medium and long term. And then the answer is no if if they don't fit your your priorities. You know, If you're a researcher and your job is to get Uh, grants and write publications, and you're asked to serve on a committee to establish a new process at the university, the answer, especially as a junior person, should be no. You know, as a mid-career or as a senior person, it's a little bit more difficult because you have leadership roles, you have responsibilities in other ways. But as a junior person, you're not going to get tenure or you're not going to get promoted if you're not putting out grants and publications. And so the answer should be no. That's sometimes hard to do because the person offering may be the chair of your department or may be the chief of your clinical division. So that's where mentorship comes in. And I think... Every study in academic medicine has proven that mentorship, having mentors, is key to being successful in your career. Uh, And so I would advise anybody who's junior starting out to get mentors, one or more. I have a mentorship committee of three other physicians and researchers, all with different areas of interest. And we meet a couple of times a year face-to-face to to try to go over my career and my goals and that sort of thing. And if I get an offer that I'm not 100% certain about, should I say yes, should I say no, I will forward that offer to my mentors and say, what do you think? Is this an opportunity that I shouldn't pass up and might lead to other things down the road? Or is this something that is separate from my uh, goals and I should say no to? And if my mentors say no, it's not even a question. I will respond no to the person, no matter who they are. And if it's somebody with a lot of responsibility and power, I'll say, well, you know, I ran this by my mentorship committee and they felt it wasn't in keeping with the goals that they've set out or that I've set out for myself. And so they've recommended that I say no to that. And very rarely will a uh, somebody in charge say, well, your mentorship committee doesn't know what they're talking about and you should say yes. <laughs> you know, they really, I think people in charge recognize how important mentorship is and putting the blame on your mentors is an easy way to deflect blame from yourself when you're saying no. 
I couldn't agree more. I think that's very well said, Eric. I was going to say the same. I think it's very important, especially in the beginning, to use your mentors uh, strategically for these kind of uh, discussions when you're asked. The, the one thing that has been uh, mentioned to me also in this case is that if, if the time is not right when you're asked to be on a committee or to take on another job, it will probably be asked again later when the time is actually right for you. Uh, so you shouldn't be afraid to say no earlier in your career because those opportunities will probably come again. And, and while we're talking about mentorship, I was thinking a little bit more about that uh, academic athlete concept. If you think about us as academics and, and physicians, we go to a lot of training, but then when we're finished our training, we actually are on our own. And uh, mentorship is becoming a, a bigger and bigger priority for a lot of the, the faculty development programs. But athletes will never actually say, well, I've trained for this for, for years, and then I'll go on and compete at the highest level without coaching or without a trainer. So I think as academics and as physicians, we shouldn't be afraid to ask for help when we go out in practice. And, and make use of people who has done these things before us and learn from how they uh, develop their career and how they uh, advance their career uh, to where they're at right now. And, and I'm a surgeon. Atul Gawande is a, is a writer for The New York, and he's a surgeon in Boston. And he's actually written an, a very interesting piece about this on how surgeons might benefit from having a coach in the operating room that would be somebody more senior looking at how you operate and giving tips and tricks similar to what a coach or a trainer would do for an athlete. And, and this is not the mindset always for people who've gone through medical school or, or are academics, kind of when you've done your training, you're out on your own and, and you are not always taking advantage of the systems and, and the mentorship uh, availability, availabilities that are that are out there, and the training program we're both part of makes a, a, a big uh, gives a big priority to mentorship. And I have to say, Mike, uh, you know, I'm sure Richard feels the same way. The reason we are saying this, the reason we wrote this article, is because we're far from perfect ourselves, and we've made tons of mistakes. You may have gotten that from uh, from all of us saying that we can do better. But I mean, I've said yes to things that I thought would be an opportunity to achieve my goals, and they turned out to be a huge waste of time. I'm not going to talk specifics because I could get in trouble, <laughs> but they turned out to be a huge waste of time. And at that point, you still have to realize that there's an opportunity for you to back out and to say no. I believe very strongly in fulfilling your obligations, but your obligations are not indefinite. And if you're finding that this is not achieving what you wanted it to achieve, look for an opportunity to back out. And again, you may want to blame your mentors, but you may just say, you know, listen, another opportunity came up that I, I feel is uh, more in keeping with my area of interest. And I hope you understand if I back out at the first available possibility, when do you think that I could back out without causing too much disruption in your committee or in your group or anything like that. And I think usually people are receptive. They don't want people just hanging on and doing nothing. They don't want people who are not doing the work that needs to be done. And so if you admit that this isn't really your thing and it's not going all that well for you, I think most people would be okay with you backing out. 
Nice. Yeah, I, I like that you called out the fact that you don't just completely back away from the thing. In a lot of cases, you look for the opportunity to not just leave everybody else in the lurch, but to find a way that this is a win-win where this isn't serving your specific goals and objectives. So you're looking for a way to get out of this, but you don't want to leave everybody else high and dry. So uh, you're trying to find a, a, a good opportunity, a good point where it's not going to hurt the the group or the other people as well. I had a pastor tell me one time that how you leave one season is how you enter another. Uh, and it sounds like that's specifically what you're talking about there. I also really love the emphasis on the mentorship that you brought up, Richard. I'm curious if this is the, these mentorship programs, if these are becoming more common, it kind of sounds like the, you guys both have experience with a mentorship program, or is this something that a lot of people would have to seek out for themselves or are they kind of like lined up with a, with a mentor? Uh, how, how common is that? And how much work do you have to do uh, yourself potentially if you find yourself in an academic setting without a, without a mentor? What, where should you go? What should you do? I think there's a, a different developments there. I think big companies are aware that if you invest in people, you probably want to make sure that they're uh, well equipped to become the best of themselves. I think also academics is is getting more and more uh, aware of this development. And I, I've talked to some senior people here at our university, and and some people say, well, when I started, when I when I graduated, and and when I started my position as a professor. There was no mentorship program and we were just doing what we thought was the good thing to do. And then some people had their kind of personal system where they would uh, uh, get a relationship with somebody more senior in a department. But I, I do think that most uh, universities and even hospitals are becoming more and more aware of the value of having good mentorship and making sure that people are, are on uh, the most efficient or effective track for their career so that when you invest in these new people that they actually gonna be turning out very good and and uh, are, are gonna be very uh, valuable for for the organization and mentorship programs uh, are helpful for that and and I know here at our research institute in our university uh, over the last five to ten years they've developed mentorship programs where everybody knew in the in the university, everybody knew in the research institute gets uh, a mentor assigned, and um, there's a, a structured program where we have lectures and where we have meetings. But then there's also the opportunity to just go for a coffee with your mentor and discuss some of the things that that uh, you uh, come across when you start out as a, as an, uh, a new academic. Nice. So the mentorship, obviously, you you talked about that being a key piece in performing at an elite level, and I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, you're not just saying, "Okay, I've I've graduated and now I know everything, and I can just produce at an elite level." Like you had mentioned, like an like an athlete, you want a coach who can point out your blind spots and help you to continue to get even better. Uh, in the article, you talked about a couple things specifically related to self care which help an academic athlete perform at an elite level. Do you want to talk about some of these things? Yeah, I can maybe mention something that that was also from the um, corporate athlete piece that was published in Harvard Business Review. They speak about how when you uh, expand 
energy. So when you use up energy, it has to be regained. Otherwise, you get injured as an athlete. So if you use up too much energy, you have to make sure that you also gain some energy by doing something else. And I think that's where sometimes that is not the highest priority for for some people in academics or or in in uh, the hospitals where they just keep going and keep working and uh, then some people get burned out or some people lose interest in what they're doing and um, um, we actually uh, give a few tips for for to make sure that you're you're taking good care of yourself and and uh, the, the obvious things are sleep and diet and exercise and making mindfulness part of your uh, routine to help with that. I agree completely. I think we've all, physician burnout especially, uh, has been a huge issue all over the world. And I think it's a dangerous issue for patients because physicians who are burned out do not perform at their full capabilities, just like athletes who are not sleeping well or not eating properly or not exercising will not perform at their best uh, capabilities. So physician burnout is a major issue. I think uh, I agree with the sleep, diet, exercise, and mindfulness for me have, have completely changed. I think, you know, probably 10 years ago, I was not a good example of that. Sleep, I've always been a good sleeper. I need seven hours of sleep to function during the day properly. And I know that with less than that, I don't function at 100%. Uh, but diet and exercise and mindfulness for me in the last five years have become a regular part of my week. And I found that that has given me more uh, energy when it comes to diet and exercise. Uh, so my time when I'm working is more productive, more than makes up for the hours that I spend in the gym. And I think the mindfulness has helped me both as a person to realize when my emotions are not necessarily based in reality or when my emotion to acknowledge my emotions as they come up, but also to recognize when I'm getting distracted in the middle of work. Uh, I love I love Headspace as well. I use Headspace on a regular basis and they actually have a productivity module to try to treat to teach you how to recognize when you're being distracted and try to bring your focus back to what you're supposed to be focused on. So I think the mind is just like any other muscle. If you learn to refocus it on whatever you're trying to do or learn to shift your attention to what's positive, uh, that practice will get easier and easier and will improve your productivity and improve your attitude and emotions in general. Awesome. So you had mentioned earlier, Eric, that uh, you, had, you had called out the fact that you're you're still learning, you're still improving, you're not perfect in any of this stuff, and uh, I, I will echo that. <laughs> you know, that's one of the things that I, I hope people uh, like about the productivity show and Asian efficiency is we try to be transparent and real about our own productivity journeys here. But when you were writing this article, was there something that really clicked for you, or you know, one piece of information that you're like, I'm going to apply this that you learned from the process of writing this article? Like how does writing this article changed you in, into who you are today? What, what effect has it had on, on your productivity and in, in the practices that you, you uh, execute? So I would say a few things. Number one, it taught me how awesome it is to work in a beautiful coffee shop. I wrote most of my part of this article. We split the writing task, but I wrote most of my part of this article in a coffee shop that's in a historic Royal Bank building in downtown Montreal. It was the first time where I actually went to another city to attend a conference or a conference was going on at the same time. And I had research meetings around that conference, but it was the first time that I didn't actually sign up for the conference. 
I figured it wasn't really in my area of expertise. It wasn't in my uh, sort of short or long-term goals to learn about this stuff. And so I didn't attend the conference and I just worked when I wasn't in meetings, I worked and wrote. And I wrote two papers in the span of a week, one of them being this one, working in this beautiful coffee shop in downtown Montreal. Uh, it was fantastic. So that's number one, that it taught me how to do that. Uh, number two, it taught me that really there's very little evidence when it comes to, I mean, we're very evidence-based people, physicians. We want to base our decisions on evidence. There's very, very little evidence when it comes to the productivity space and um, you know the, the techniques that have been uh, employed or suggested in the productivity space which uh, tells me as if anybody's out there in academic business, for example, there's lots of room here for research in the field. That being said, I think some of these methods have been tried and true and really uh, based on experience have been proven to, to work very, very well. So that's the second thing it taught me. And the third thing it taught me was that I need to check email less. I think that's something that Richard taught me at one point. Um, <laughs> I was always... I prided myself. Really, I was proud about the fact that I carried my phone, I responded to email instantly, and anybody could get a hold of me at any time. And I was, I am Generation X, and you know, you're always connected, you're always on. And I've realized that I can't do that anymore. Uh, and Richard helped teach me this, that t checking email constantly is not good. So around this time of writing this article and thinking about this article, I've uh, sort of vowed to myself to check email only three times a day before, you know, when I come into work in the morning, which I know, you, Mike, you're not a big fan of doing that first thing in the morning, but I still do that. And then lunchtime and then before I leave for the day, I'll check email three times a day. Still working on it. I'm not perfect. You may have noticed from how quickly I respond to your emails, Mike, but uh, I'm still working on trying to restrict my email use. But that's one thing that I learned through all of this. Nice. Uh, yeah. And no judgment here. I mean, I get it. There's, there's certain situations where you do have to check your email more often. I am kind of privileged in that regard where the entire Asian efficiency company is not based on, on email. So, uh, I, I know that I'm, I'm kind of a, an edge case there. Uh, what about you, Richard? What did you learn from the process of writing this article? Yeah. So I also, uh, I had a few things that I learned, uh, about this process. The main thing I thought that was very interesting was that it was super efficient writing this article with Eric. We got this paper written and revised and in final draft, I think within three, four weeks during the holiday season in the summer, which was pretty amazing. It was one of the most efficient manuscripts I've ever written. So I think that was fun to experience that. Then the second thing I picked up from this is that I think there's quite a bit of awareness in the business world about productivity systems and uh, using uh, uh, mechanisms to be uh, effective and productive in, in the business world, whereas that's pretty much not very common yet in academics or in, in the medical world. And uh, as Eric said, there's almost no papers written on this for a medical specialist. And I think we can learn a lot from the business world to uh, try and apply some of these principles uh, in healthcare and in, in, in academics and, and try and improve some of our productivity. And the last thing I would say is um, I might have trained Eric on, on not checking your email all the time. Having said that, I was very uh, happy to see uh, you guys come out with the inbox detox 
uh, module recently and, and I uh, subscribe to it because that's something I'm still struggling with. I go through good and bad phases, but uh, uh, recently it's been uh, more on the bad side, so I need some uh, uh, advice against <laughs> well, as a Dojo member, you know, you've, you've got access to it. So hopefully it, it helps. That was a fun product to, uh, to work on. Uh, the process for that, I know I've talked about it in other episodes, but I did a bunch of interviews. I think I did something like 30 different interviews with people uh, in the process of putting that together, talking to them about their specific email problems. So that was, that was definitely a, a fun one. Now, you had mentioned that there's not a whole lot of publications in the academic space that deal or speak to productivity directly. Uh, with that being the case, have you gotten any feedback from this particular article? How has it been received by the academic world? Do people think you're crazy for putting an emphasis on productivity, that that's something that should stay in the business world, or is this kind of eye-opening to some people? I think it's been very helpful to some people. Uh, you know, it's it's not the type of article that's going to be referenced by other scientific articles in the medical literature, but there's a nice way of gauging impact called the Altmetric Score, which takes an article and measures how often it was mentioned in the media or mentioned on social media, like Twitter, Facebook, Mendeley, which is an academic referencing site. And this article has already got a, an altmetric score of 29, which is in the top 5% of all research articles scored by altmetric. So that's impressive that it was uh, really based mostly on Twitter. And there's a lot of academics on Twitter who are uh, sharing knowledge. And we've gotten a lot of tweets and retweets uh, of the article. In addition, it was really nice to hear from somebody I was speaking to last week that in their training program, this article is handed out to all the residents and trainees uh, as, as a way of showing them how they can be more academically productive. And that was uh, very gratifying for me that, to know that people are using it to teach trainees. I hope it will make a difference. Uh, so, you know, in that way, I think it, it has made an impact and people are, are viewing it very receptively. I hope it leads to more. Like, I don't think this article is the end of things. I hope it leads to more understanding of how this can be used in hospitals to improve not just academic physicians, but the productivity of nurses and the productivity of trainees and the way we treat patients in order to make things better and have less waste in the hospital. I think that's key is that you really want to uh, improve the healthcare system, improve the care of patients and reduce the cost of caring for patients, which is really important in Canada where it's a, a single funder, government funded healthcare system. So I hope it makes more of an impact as well. Excellent. A lot of my other questions here regarding the research process, I know that we've touched on. There's a couple specific resources you've mentioned in this particular episode. So we've talked about deep work by Kel Newport a couple times. You both mentioned getting things done by David Allen. We've got the link uh, in the show notes for the Harvard Business Review article. Are there any additional resources or tools that you've found particularly influential that you want to point people to? I think uh, the Pomodoro technique has been very helpful for both of us. Just uh, putting a timer and, and working really focused on something for 25 minutes. Anybody can do that. Anybody can get that started. And that, that really helps to get things going. And if you get 25 minutes in, first thing in the morning, the chances of adding more 25-minute blocks are, are pretty good for that day. So I think that's a big one, the, the Pomodoro technique. I think Cal Newport's book was very influential for both uh, both Eric and I, and uh, the the Eat That Frog 
paradigm from Brian Tracy has been also very uh, uh, helpful. In the Gastroenterology Journal article, we do have a table of useful podcasts. Of course, Productivity Show is top of the list there. Useful blogs, useful books, references, and then also useful technology or useful tools for productivity. I mean, I use Evernote. I think I live in Evernote, and I'm going to get heck for this in the uh, dojo, but I use Evernote as a task manager, and I always have. I find that using tags as context uh, is really uh, useful for me and having everything in one place so that it's not split between a task manager and Evernote for me is useful, although I know I should probably try something else. And then we mentioned rescue time. Feedly is a good one. So Feedly, F-E-E-D-L-Y.com. So for academics who are always trying to follow the literature in our field or follow certain journals, Feedly is an RSS reader. It's a pretty simple RSS reader. Uh, For me, it replaced Google Reader when they shut that down. But I subscribe to the Feedly feeds for quite a few of the journals that I know are very important in my field. And so I will see, I check my Feedly field once, my Feedly feed once a day. And in that Feedly feed is the latest publications in the field that I'm interested in. So I'm able to keep on top of the literature in that way. And keeping on top of the literature for academics is, is, can be very difficult, can be overwhelming because there's so many journals out there. So having, and you can even in Feedly, you can set up an RSS feed for your PubMed search. So if you have a regular search uh, using Medline or Embase and the academics know what I'm talking about when I say that. Uh, if you have, you've set up an RSS feed for your specific search, dump it into Feedly and Feedly will give you anything that comes up in that particular search uh, on a daily basis. So I find that to be a very useful technique as well. For academics, using a reference manager is really important as well. I was surprised when I was speaking to some trainees that nobody ever taught them how to use a reference manager. So I use EndNote. There's also RefWorks, Mendeley, other reference managers that are out there. But being able to keep all your references in one place and then very quickly being able to access them to either read the articles again or to reference them when you're writing papers is essential. So using a a reference manager is really important as well. Great. Well, like Planet Fitness, this is a judgment-free zone, so <laughs> no judgment, Eric. But I, I think we will have to have a conversation in the dojo about how specifically you do that. We're running a little bit late here, but uh, I, I do want to continue that conversation about how you use Evernote as a task manager. Maybe we'll have to have you back on the show sometime. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> but uh, where can people go if they want to connect with you other than uh, the dojo? Any place that you would point people to, whether it be social media or a website? Yeah, so for me, I think probably Twitter is the best place. I think for Richard as well, we have an interest in using social media to disseminate knowledge in medicine. So you can reach me at Eric Benchamal, my first name and last name, or you can reach me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash in slash Eric Benchamal. Nice. What about you, Richard? Yeah, it would be the same. Uh, Twitter at Richard Kaiser, first and last name, and LinkedIn, uh, linkedin.com slash in slash Richard Kaiser. Can I add one more not necessarily tool, but but a resource that, that I think is important to keep in mind. After Absolutely. Eric and I gave one of these workshops, one of my mentors came up to me and said, well, that's all fantastic, all these tips and tricks, but where's the human aspect in all this? You can, you can go all out and have all these systems in place and all these data, but at some point you'd have to connect with people as well. And, and I do think that's not always mentioned and in healthcare is, is really important. And I think Eric would probably agree with this, that in the end it all comes down to human interaction and, and human communication. 
And I think if some of these techniques help to free up some time to connect with your patients or with your coworkers or with the people that you uh, supervise in, in your lab, I think that's very important to just uh, the, the plain old 10 minutes uh, sit down with a person and having a coffee is, is a huge productivity tool as well. And being present while you do yeah. it, being fully focused and present while you do it and interacting with other people is really important. Yeah, I'm very glad that you called that out. That's one of the things that I got from the Productivity Project by Chris Bailey. He mentioned that people are the reason for productivity. So thank you. Thank you for calling that out. And we'll have links to all of this stuff in the uh, the show notes. So if you're listening to this, you can uh, you can access any of these things, including the article that we had mentioned. So thank you so much, Eric and Richard, for being on the Productivity Show. Our pleasure. It was great. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for having us. My thanks to Eric and Richard for taking the time to come on The Productivity Show, and I'm really glad that they touched on the importance of mentorship. Tan taught me about an African proverb a long time ago that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Surrounding yourself with the right people who can inspire you and help you go further than you can by yourself is critical to your success. And if you want to surround yourself with the right people, There's no better place than the dojo, our online productivity community. The dojo is the place where you can connect with other like-minded achievers who can not only share the latest productivity tips and techniques, but also encourage you and hold you accountable for reaching your goals. So if you want to connect with people like Eric and Richard, as well as myself, Brooks, Tan, and the rest of the Asian Efficiency team, the dojo is the place for you. You'll also get access to the comprehensive video training library with a new video course that is added every single month. Now here's the best part. You can get access to the entire dojo, the community, the video training library, even software discounts for only $1 for your first month. But this offer is just for podcast listeners. So if you want to take advantage of this special offer, you have to go to theproductivityshow.com slash dojo. Again, that URL is theproductivityshow.com slash dojo. You can also find links to everything that we discussed today in the show notes by going to theproductivityshow.com slash 186. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us an iTunes review or a star in Overcast as it really helps us out and helps other people find out about the show. The show is on Twitter as at ProductivityFM. And if you want to get your questions answered and get mentioned on the show, you can send us a tweet with the hashtag AskTPS. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next Productive Monday.